Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Crystal Bilby. She is the founder of KBI Concepts. And today, we're going to be looking at why stuff in sales doesn't work, the kind of questions people should ask but don't. We're going to be looking at common shots in the foot exercised by founders and leadership teams by managers and by salespeople. And we're also going to look at what are the symptoms that you can expect to see where people are building more complexity into already shaky and complex systems and infrastructure, how they're getting in their own way. And Crystal's also going to introduce a fabulous concept called a rollback strategy. So Crystal Bilby, welcome. Thank you. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your career history, please? Sure. I fell into sales. And um, like most, most people do that are sales professionals, they fall into sales. And you find that that's your craft, you hone it, and you continue to just move forward through your career. I started originally working for UC Davis Medical Center, and then I worked for the Tissue Bank, and I developed a national network of for distribution and I was recruited to go into outside sales and I have continued to love that expand on that and focus on revenue operations primarily okay. with you know growth and launching of new products what gets your soul singing doing things that matter so really making sure that we introduce something new that can affect people's lives okay and if you think about the best day you've had at work in the last two, three years, what were you doing? Who were you doing it with? In the last two to three years, I think that one of the best things we did is we had launched, I worked for a company where we launched, we took a new product and we launched a new sector and a new treatment with it. And one of the best days I had is when I had a, vascular surgeon say, yes, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. And we're, and we're going to build this into my practice. And um, we built referral patterns and roughed out a strategy for him and started building those relationships. So, so the gist of it is, is that we, we got, I got somebody to adopt something new and helped them strategize to build their business based on what I brought to him. Excellent. Okay. Now I'm getting a real sense of who you are. Really interested in terms of this whole concept that businesses are there to serve the shareholders' interests. And I'm really Ah. curious about your thoughts on that because I I vehemently disagree. So I'll put my flag in the, the ground there. But I'm just curious your thoughts on this topic. Businesses that serve their shareholders' interests. So first off, tell me what tell me what you disagree with with that. So just so we um, can get into what what part of that, because that's a wide topic. That's fair. Okay. If we worship at the church of finance on the altar of shareholder value, then all the other key stakeholders like the customer. And the customer comes in many shapes and sizes. You've got users, you've got the buyers, the commissioners, uh, the technical buyers, all of that. But they're 
experiencing the outcomes that they intended, the employees, because I look at the terribly low uh, engagement levels of staff. And that means that they're probably operating at around 50%. In fact, I think that's generous. I think around 25 to 35% full production. Whereas where you have highly engaged staff, they're 430% higher profit per employee, 190% higher revenue per employee, turnover is lower. And I just see the, the emphasis on the shareholder has taken people away from what really makes the what really delivers shareholder value because of short-term thinking. So I hope that gives you more clarity. I feel like we've talked about this before. And and here's why. So here's my soapbox is often you'll see an organization. So you have a you have a company that's grown to a certain point and they they receive VC money. They see they receive investment money. You see the entire leadership focused shift to reporting to the board, right? So then, so everything becomes about what it looks like to the board instead of looking out. The way I see it is you have two different types of senior management. You have the type of senior management that leads, that leads up or looks up, I should say. And then you have the type that looks out. And what happens with that, and that's part of the symptoms that you see in business that you had mentioned when during the introduction here is that a lot of the shift and the focus, at least in the sales and revenue ops, becomes focused on making everything look pretty so that it can be presented well to the board and therefore presented well during due diligence and up for sale. When in fact, what, what could happen, and I've seen happen successfully, is that when people look out and they focus on what happens, you don't have to, you don't have to put the metaphorical lipstick on a pig because you've actually got a really good system into something that's valuable. So I think that as with most things, that comes from fear and scarcity and not and really, you know, being reactionary instead of holding your ground and doing what is actually indeed in the best interest, not only for all of your stakeholders, but all of your shareholders as well. So it's interesting you use the word reactionary rather than reactive. Um, Because my definition of that is it tends to be a sort of punish it, punitive, knee-jerk reaction. Um, And I think that's quite fair when it comes to the way organizations post-funding try and course correct. Because their natural instinct is to use brute force and throw money at the problem because they've got it. It's like in the 14th, uh, 12th or 13th century, it was a law that people, uh, all males over 14, had to carry a dagger. Knife crime went up. If you give people the, the tools, they'll use them. And having a lot of money suddenly means that people do the simple thing, which actually adds more uh, weight and complexity to the organization. Instead of taking a step back and asking, what can we remove? What can we eliminate? What can we stop doing? What's unnecessary? And I'm guessing this is uh, the fundamentals of rollback strategy. It is indeed. So I I absolutely agree with everything that you've said, and, and it is the fundamental of that. So focus on what's important 
and get rid of what's not so that you're not doing creative writing and you're not trying to, you know, force something to look differently than it is. And you're not falsifying or muddying the waters with your due diligence, if you would. This is really interesting because there's a, a real parallel here with the blue sky, it's on the roadmap type of cell that happens an awful lot as well. You can kind of get away with it once or twice, but when the entire sales organization is doing it, and it seems to start from the Raro speak for the CEO saying, this is what we're going to be doing. And then the salespeople start talking about it, but the customer only hears, this is what we're doing. So you end up with these compound unintended consequences rolling up. You see it in recruitment, in the compensation systems, in the KPIs. So most organizations, in my experience, have created all these blockages in their own arteries. And it's difficult to let go of that attachment. So in your experience of working throughout the revenue operations, I want to be clear about the necessity for alignment across the whole uh, revenue operation. What are the common attachments that people need to be become aware of? So when they realize, they hear themselves saying stuff, that's not like, that's not the way we do things around here. Or mm, I don't think it'll work without giving it any evidence. Then what, what are the symptoms you see where people unintentionally keep themselves blocked? I see it in, uh, in when you say, uh, when you hear somebody say, I think, I believe, I feel, instead of, I have found, I can prove, this has been revealed, right? So those are kind of the key things that you, that you hear. And a lot of it will come from, if the, if the development, first off, if there's an internal struggle amongst your, your C-suite or your senior leadership, then you'll see this often, especially in smaller companies. And because the struggle is more real, the layers, the decision layers are, are one deep and a lot of egos are involved, a lot of posturings involved okay. and uh, probably a lot of equities involved. But if they cannot show that this is something that they have can do and bring to light, if they cannot show that they actually have done the market research and have the input from end <coughs> users, that's a problem because then you're operating on hunches and assumptions. Well, marketing's become so data-led, but my, my view on that is they've taken on so much data and right. they haven't got a clue how to use it. And you only have to look at the waste the barrage of psychological abuse that comes out of marketing teams in terms of email campaigns and anodyne yeah. advertising and digital media and all of this stuff. And then you, you look at the number of touches that salespeople have to involve themselves in just to get a first meeting. I was interviewing right. Jason Bay yesterday, and he said on average to get one first meeting, there are 250 touches. Is that, which industry is that in? He's mainly in IT. Here's what's interesting on that data note. You can see this not just in marketing and the amount of touches that you have, but let's take it into something else to make sure that it's not just, you know, a lot of people will say, well, that applies in this area because, well, 
I think we have an abundance of data and we have too much information that we don't know how to use and how much of it is quality information that we have. If you even look at something like EMRs, so um, electronic medical right, records. EMR for those people who don't know it. Electronic medical records, right? So you look okay. at your, your health records, they're all electronic. And that was a mandate that we had here in the US. And that information is largely unreliable. And it's coming to light now that the information that's in these electronic health records that was an absolute mandate is not relied upon by practitioners and clinicians because it's information that's in there and they have ne- they can't do anything with it because they don't know what's real and what's not real. So it's the same thing in CRM. Right. Yeah, uh, right. Well over 80% of the data in uh, most the average CRM is worthless. So you're, you know, you're making these critical decisions yeah. based on maybe 20% accurate information. And you would literally be better flipping a coin. Look at pipelines, right? So, so I can look in, some, in, a, in a, somebody's CRM and look at their pipeline and identify a pattern in probably five to 10 minutes. Most of the times I can do it in, in seven minutes. So that's why I say five to 10. I can identify if it's bullshit or not. Okay, because when have you found a pipeline not to be bullshit? When it's my own that I have control over that nobody else is, is you know, only when it's my own. And it's my own private one that nobody else sees because most salespeople have two, right? So they have they have the one that they put into their corporate and then they have the one that they keep on their own that's their real master. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> good question. <laughs> good call. <laughs> Well, it, it's real. I mean, that's real life. Yeah. I think there is a huge disconnect for the customer. And each time they get bumped from one part of the revenue operation to the next, that lack of alignment, that lack of consistency, that lack of continuity creates a breach of intimacy because you have to start again every single time. And the handover is poor. I think it's a pet peeve. That's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> How did I guess? You then see blame and excuses being the main currency uh, right. between uh, each of these departments. And the poor buggers at the end of it are, co- are customer success and operations. And they have to try and fulfill against the promises that sales have given in order to just make their quota. They'll sell anything to anyone. And I think there's a really important piece here around being clear who our customer is not. Right. And being bold enough and being bold enough to say, that's not a deal I'm comfortable closing and to be able to have the support to do that. In order to do that, however, it goes back to, this is all a symptom of having an unhealthy pipeline and probably poor marketing and targeting. And even further back, let's roll it back even more, is unrealistic expectations of what can be delivered, which is what you had talked about when you referenced blue sky, right? So so unrealistic expectations and inability to deliver. Okay, well, again, I think unrealistic expectations and inability to deliver are absolutely symptomatic across many organizations. And that is fueled by the money behind them then the pressure that and the refocusing away from the customer 
towards making the valuation better and racing towards the exit. Certainly within technology, you see that. I suspect that more mature businesses or sectors are more focused on things like profit, whereas technology companies aren't. That, I think, is, again, unhealthy and creates the conditions for a bubble. See, that's interesting that you bring that up because most it's interesting to me that most people don't realize that different businesses have different goals and more mature businesses are going to look at profit, whereas startup or growth phases or those looking to be acquired, they're only looking at recurring revenue. Profitability is not the key. It's new logos. How many are we bringing in in the door and what, what can our potential bookings be? Again, that then raises some really, really interesting and dangerous questions because if you're not looking at profitability and you're not looking at things like the lifetime value of a customer, you're just looking at new logo acquisition, then you're probably creating the conditions for poor experience and churn. And certainly within the SaaS market, 15% churn is considered perfectly acceptable. But what that means is over a three-year period, you lose 49% of your customers. And if your pipeline is already weak, inconsistent, unreliable, empty, and you've got to make up another 15% just to stand still, that then has a ripple effect in terms of the pressure that it creates on the salespeople and on middle management and the kind of pressure that comes down from above where they keep beating the drum that more is better. More right. isn't better. Better is better. Right. So one of the things that I, I have two, two thoughts on that. First off is we have, I believe, if you're going to ask anybody to trust you with their business, whether it be in serving their customers, because mostly what I do is business to business or in serving anybody, you're, you have a responsibility to, to do the right thing. If you're, if you're asking to be inside of their room, then you have a responsibility to do the right thing, do the right thing by, by those involved. So if you consider that, we, we had talked about the, the employee, not just the individuals within the, a particular provider company, a vendor company, but you're looking at the, all of those people, all of their families, everybody they touch, and then you're dealing with, and I, I work, I've worked a lot in the business side of medicine. So you're dealing with providers, you're dealing with healthcare, large healthcare organizations, all of their employees, all of their patients, all of their families. So we have a ripple effect across the entire ecosystem, really. If you, you know, if you're looking at seven degrees of separation, you're talking about a lot of people that you're dealing with and a lot of economic impact. Well, this then raises the next question, because I, I have a real bee in my bonnet about <laughs> um, many things. And one of which is the need to move away from the concept of training and more towards learning. Mm -hmm. I think right. you and I both agree that the responsibility for development sits primarily with the individual. And the organization should be supporting the individual to meet their potential. But I believe that most sales training fails and it's, spend, it's being spent on the wrong people. If you're not training managers how to be managers, and they are 
totally different skill set to being a producer, right. then they fail on the five litmus tests for a manager. Right. A manager has five functions, hire the best people. And recruitment is normally seen as an inconvenient afterthought as opposed to the single most important role of any manager. So not building a bench. And so when they do have a vacancy, they're hiring the best available compromise candidate who's willing to take their job rather than the best candidate in the market. Especially Um, now. Yeah, especially now. And then you've got second one, which is get the best out of them. Mm -hmm. That means coaching, training, mentoring, bit of supervisory, uh, ride-alongs. It means rehearsal. It means uh, planning, research. Third one, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Right. But we've had this mass of um, technology spaghetti being dumped on sales and marketing and management and operations. And most of them haven't got a clue what they're doing with it. And the second they get the big howitzer of automation, they bombard right. everybody and end up being blacklisted. Then they've got to clear the path and uh, protect them from acts of EDC from above. And another huge gap is that they fail to manage inclusively. So they tell rather than listen. And as a producer, being the super closer is great. Having that mantle as a manager is disempowering and also yes. creates turns you into a bottleneck. So... Again, I'd be really curious about your thoughts in terms of where revenue operations needs to focus their attention on management and how that needs to change. I think one of the biggest, I'm going to go back to what we talked about a moment ago, in that you have to have reasonable expectations. So we have falsified quotas based on what? We have falsified promises of delivery based on what? There also has to be accountability in, and then I'm going to go to the other the other side of the spectrum. There has to be accountability that the salespeople are actually going to be professionals. In order to be a professional and have that accountability, they have to have some autonomy. Otherwise, you start shifting the blame around, as we talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. So in that comes all of the things that you had said. One of the um, things that I think that management can do is encourage people. This is the box that you're in. This is what we need you to do. Here's your parameters. It's like bumpers, right? In in bowling, you have the bumpers. And within that lane, kids do really well with this. Humans do really well with this. Dogs do really well with this. These are your parameters. And figure it out within those parameters. And encourage people to be resourceful. One of the things I think we're going to see, um, as a little side note here, one of the things I think we're going to see is we're going to see that the standard sales rep that is selling in a commodity style is going to go away. That's going to go away. So you have to have somebody who is, um, and the way I, my goal is to change the way sales professionals are perceived. And therefore, you have to change the way that we operate right? See the, see the way that they operate. You have to operate with integrity. You have to come from a place of knowledge and, and understanding and making sure that you're making a deal. You're not closing a sale. You're making a deal. And the deal involves an exchange of information in changing somebody's or exposing them to something new that helps them, right? It's not persuading them and talking them into something that they don't want to do. 
what we will see often is that management wants you to close the deal no matter what. Close the deal, close, close the deal. And that is harmful to everybody. It's setting everybody up for failure and gets you into that snowball that you had. So one of the things that managers need to do, as you said, hire people, come up with really good systems and boundaries, be very vulnerable and open. You have to roll back that ego, get get rid of that ego. You have to create an environment where people are not penalized for having conversations and thoughts. So if, if you have one individual who's talking about their one particular customer that they might be working with, for example, and they're being penalized and driven hard that they're not doing the right thing on that particular customer. Oh, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Instead of coming from a position of what do you need? What do you need? And if the salesperson says, I have no idea, then that has to be accepted and say, okay, well, let's work together on this. But what happens is just like the, the management is covering their ass about making sure that they're, you know, looking up and making sure everything upward looks really nice and pretty. And the salespeople have to adopt that because they're making sure their manager thinks everything is nice and pretty. And then you have a lot of masking and you don't really know what's going on. So management needs to create that environment first. But most managers aren't equipped. That's my premise. Jonathan Farrington did some uh, study in December 2020. And his conclusion was 94% of managers are not fit for purpose in sales. Now, that's a huge damning indictment. Not fit for sales, meaning they're not fit for sales management or they're not yeah. fit to be a sales operator? Many of them are probably perfectly fine operators. but. You, you see this false economy of yeah. creating player managers yeah. who carry a bag and they're meant Can't to build a team and they're meant to coach. But whatever happens, they focus on the thing that they can control and where they get paid. So they focus on their own production target. You see many managers tapped on the shoulder and told, Crystal, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. Off you go. And that's the sum total of their runway into management. I don't blame them for it, but I do recognize that you touched on another parallel topic. Commoditized sales roles will disappear. They'll go by the way of Siri and Alexa and AI. They'll be offshored. Then they can be automated. Personalized websites can do a lot of this stuff already. So there won't be those entry-level sales roles. We're already seeing the fact that there is no sales management apprenticeship. And so people don't have the runway to learn the craft. And so they get thrown in at the deep end and they do one or two things. Well, one of three things. They either paralyze and realize, my God, I've just made a terrible decision. They do what was done to them or they do what they think is best, but they don't have the frameworks. They don't have the tools. They don't have the resources. And senior leadership isn't coaching them. Well, the business of people is very different than the business of acquiring customers, right? It's a very different business. And for me, I know I'm not somebody who's going to be really good at doing somebody's quarterly review and keeping all of the paperwork in line, all of that type of information. I can build a system for it. But it really needs to have an operations person who really gathers the information, takes the input and does that. And then the sales leader needs to be a different role. 
So they need to almost have an administrative role in most sales ops, if you would. So because they're two different skill sets, they're two different personalities, and you don't want to try to water down one with the other. It doesn't work. Actually, the research on this is very clear. If you try and work on a weakness, it tends to impact the strength. Interesting. I can see that. So You're like an encyclopedia. You have a reference for everything. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) What's my, My biggest lesson over the last two years of running the podcast is that the real value doesn't come from the original thought. It comes from the synthesis. So um, I can't claim any originality to all of this, but being able to join the dots has been incredible. The kind of things that I'm capable of doing today, I would never have been able to do two years ago. Even though I was very competent at what I did, what I didn't have was that synthesis. I think this is another really good argument for why we need more alignment across leadership, management, marketing, sales, operations, account growth, product development. And I think that there isn't enough cross-fertilization because we've created these different silos. I think what went wrong is about 40 years ago, Milton Friedman came up with the lie that everything should be uh, worshipping around shareholder value. And then everything turned into Adam Smith's pin factory in sales. And so it was all broken down. So with the sales teams I'm building, they're compensated, they're measured on less on new logo acquisition, but on consumption and adoption. When the customer achieves their intended objective, the third renewal, I'm not interested in the first renewal as much as the third, because it means that they've come back time and again, because you're still relevant. And especially with technology, customer service is or customer retention and and customer success is going to be the new sales. I agree. And in fact, my sales teams have to get authorization or a green light from operations before they can sign a contract. Ah, interesting. That's a great concept. You can't deliver. We've got no business selling it. Um, Agreed. And, and I think there might be a, con- there could, there's definitely a conflict of interest when a salesperson whose compensation is designed on closing that deal and passing it off, and then they have no vested interest. So I've created them a little bit differently, but I like the idea of having, having somebody on, on the success side, sign up uh, fulfillment, sign off on that, or at least participate in that. What I've done is, in, is structure it so that the sales teams are rewarded based on the success of the customer. Because in, if you're oh, looking yeah. at SaaS, for example, your entry is very small compared to your upsells. So um, it's, very, it's a very different structure, but that's where most of the money is made in SaaS is in that recurring or those transactional processes after the fact. Again, I think if you think in terms of the lifetime value of the customer, as opposed to the immediate transaction value, And you think about having a customer in five or 10 years' time when you're prospecting, as opposed to, will you help me make my quota this month? The intent that you project is completely different. And this speaks to this whole concept of buyer safety. 
I think far too few vendor organizations put the customer's safety at the heart of what they do. And if they were thinking about, thinking as the customer instead of about the customer, then you wouldn't end up in these situations where salespeople squeeze the square peg into the round hole and where you then create a problem downstream because instead of having customer success, you have customer complaints and you start developing product in ways and you know, there are uh, tickets out for stuff that were never on the roadmap. So that creates more operational problems. You've got to think of your business as a system. And when you're selling, you need to think about the impact on the customer's system of them making the right or the wrong purchase. You're speaking to my heart. Absolutely. Okay. So how do we get leadership when their entire compensation and raison d'etre is to exit quickly? for a potload of cash, how do we get them to rethink? Or do we have to wait for a bubble to burst? I think we're going to wait for a bubble to burst because here's what's hap- what I see happening is it's so fast and furious. And really what's interesting to me is you see a lot of the, um, and it really comes down to what the hidden agenda is on the, on the companies that are acquiring these smaller companies or these companies are in these gro- hyper growth phases. It comes down to which accounting firm is signing off on the due diligence, right? <laughs> so, right. So, if that accounting firm is signing off on due diligence on the due diligence, and they've missed something, and you see some of these things, you'll see that you have these companies that have they don't have really well defined finance systems, and they don't have them on purpose. There's a reason why they don't have those systems in place. It's because they don't want them to be in place because it's easier to fudge on your bookings, right? And there's just a lot of things that can get missed when you don't have those. But the accounting firms that are signing off on these due diligence are are interesting to me, especially if it's private money. So you you don't have the same regulations when private money is involved as when it's a publicly traded company. So if it's private money, there's not really a lot that, that we can do other than to appeal to those who want to do right, to do the right thing and, and to do the, the, the better thing, to do the best thing. That's really where I see it. When the bubble bursts though, it's going to burst because, because there's a lot of money available right now. What happens when there's not a lot of money available? What happens when the tides turn and the types of um, ac- massive acquisitions that are being done slows down? Because that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Without doubt. I mean, if you look at the top 100 SaaS companies on the planet, the median profit margin is 0%. Crazy. They're not businesses. They're cash cows. They're data collection centers. That's what you see repeatedly is people are looking at for those data initiatives. What do you do with that data? Everybody wants data. They want it. They want it. They want it. They want it. What are they going to do with it? Well, that then creates some pretty horrific conditions as sellers. Because the emphasis isn't on solving the customer's problem. It's on meeting quota and keeping your job. And as a manager, um, I mean, one of the other interesting things is uh, my managers only get bonused if 80% or more of the sales team are hitting quota. Mm-hmm. They can only go on jollies and awards dinners and things like that if 80% of their salespeople are hitting quota. 
because I want them to do their job. I want them to hire well and consistently. I want them to build a bench. I want them to spend 70, 80% of their time in the field because I know that learning happens after training in the field and they need to put the practice in. Kevin Dorsey says that professionals practice on purpose, amateurs practice in front of the customer. And there's the inefficiencies within the entire sales operation. So we've, we've passed over all the inefficiencies within marketing. To get to a second meeting is 3,240 dial attempts on average. Before we go forward, I'd like to touch on something that you said about the managers are only incentivized or rewarded. 80% of their reps are meeting quota. Yeah. That goes back to not just training, but it also goes back to stacking the deck, right? So, so a lot of times what organizations will do, especially if they're in that growth phase in order to be acquired or merged or to have an exit of some sort, is they'll stack the field. So what their investment companies will do is they'll, they'll say, okay, well, we need, you did this many dollars, right? With X amount of dollars with three reps. If you put six reps in the field, then you'll do theoretically two um, X, right? So what happens though is, is they still know that they need to hold on to that super producer rep. So they'll, they'll have that super producer rep have the, territory that they've had for some time. And you see this repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. So they'll have this territory that they won't touch. And then they'll take the other new reps that they have and they'll divide all the remaining territory. What happens is, is on paper, it looks like they've increased their sales force. You know, they've doubled their sales force. This is fantastic. They must be doing really well. Oh, they have somebody international. That's fantastic. They have somebody in Canada. Well, what if Canada really doesn't have the same or you know the upper northwest for example in the US doesn't have the same amount of opportunity right so you have to look at your total market availability not just how many reps you have on the deck but that goes even further into false theories right doing simple arithmetic when it should be an algebra problem absolutely and again this is really interesting when you start looking at what is measured and what is not the number of organizations that think that brute force and throwing money at the problem is a solution and the wrong assumptions in terms of what they measure, because most of the metrics that people measure are lagging indicators. And by the time that that information comes in, the ship's already hit the iceberg and it's halfway down the Atlantic. So they they then course correct aggressively and um, that then creates more pressure for managers and more pressure for and burnout in the sales team. Um, and you know what they've done also is they have just taken those three additional reps that they just hired and they've derailed their careers and their livelihood with false promises. And um, they have had depressed incomes. They are miserable. And that that then... You think, okay, well, those are three individuals and they, they were adults and they, took, they willingly took on a job. A lot of times those jobs that salespeople take, though, they are taken with false promises and false representations. Mm-hmm. But what happens is it's not just those three individuals and their families that are affected. That toxicity starts to go throughout the entire... It, it, it 
it's like tentacles throughout the entire organization. Right. And then, so that goes back to, you know, being ethical and, and being ethical and doing the right thing, actually how it's not just a matter of feeling good, all, all rosy, but it's a matter of how it affects your business in the long term, how it affects your customers. What you're effectively doing is you're putting your shop window people in front of dozens or hundreds of customers. It's not like the customers don't pick up on that. One of my uh, slightly bad bad jokes is that we're a customer-centric organization until the end of the quarter. And then all of a sudden, it's do anything you can to bring in the revenue. But the problem is that you're not bringing the revenue in now. It's that 12 weeks ago, you didn't prospect. And you, you don't have enough in the funnel. Right. And that, that goes back to my whole foundation of if you are doing the right things on the front end, then, it, then your revenue operations, my, my principle of revenue operations begins with your first touch point of your customer. And therefore, it has to really start with your market research, your product development, and your positioning in the market. Right. So I, my assumption is that your product development has been done on research. And therefore, I pick it up usually when, when the positioning in the market all the way through fulfillment. And then that gets handed over to you know, somebody in customer success to continue to manage it. But from that positioning all the way through to fulfillment, that's what I consider revenue operations. That's where the rubber hits the road for me. But let's go back to those questions that you know that people should be asking they should be asking why why are, why are we going to do this what happens when we do this what are, what are the ripple effects of this and what would happen instead just back to those questions absolutely and why do we still do this i have a, a lovely story of many of my listeners will have heard this before in the 1960s the british army commissioned a study on artillery firing, and this captain was watching the artilleryman carry a shell to the back of the gun, open the breech, shove the shell in. One of them would stay, to turn their back and face backwards. The other one would march 12 paces away, uh, turn around, stand to attention, put their right arm behind their back and hold up their left arm. And he said, well, why do you do that? Said, well, that's the way we were trained to fire the guns, sir. That's the way we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. So off he goes um, to speak to the gunnery sergeant. Why do you train them to do that? That's the way I was trained to train them. That's the way we train them. That's the way we find the guns in this man's army, sir. And after about two weeks of losing his hair, because it was slowing the whole process down, he speaks to uh, an old codger in the pub outside the barracks and says, well, any idea why you're a gunner? Any idea why they do this? Oh, yeah, they're holding the horses. Now, you know, for 50 years, no one has held a horse in uh, artillery, but they were still doing it. And you see the holding the horses syndrome happen a lot. This is the way we've always done it. And that attachment is really difficult for people to let go of. And under pressure, they revert back to what they learned first, brute force, throw money at the problem, add more heads. And But I, I think there's a huge gap, which is I don't believe there are enough organizations that involve the customer with marketing, they're not having those conversations with the customer. It's amazing to me. It's baffling. The people who can teach you how to sell to them are your customers. They're your best teachers, bar none. And if you're not involving them in your training and training design, if you're not 
how if you don't have them as a brain trust to help you develop your systems and processes around them, if you're not constantly going back and asking for their unvarnished, unfiltered feedback, you're living off a bunch of assumptions that have come from using data you don't understand. See, I come from the days of, uh, so when I first went into outside sales, I, came, I worked in orthopedics and people ask me who my mentors are and who I learned how to do my job from. I learned from my customers. I had phenomenal people who said, if you're going to do this, you're going to do this right and you're going to do it well. And they held my feet to the fire and I was willing to step into the hot coals. But the companies that I worked for at that time they work directly with the customers. And this is what product development used to come from the field. It didn't come from somebody in a back room thinking about something, right? It came from people that were using it and who had an idea and brought it to fruition with the help of, of companies. And that's kind of gone by the companies. And a lot of it is because people are thinking in the back room and they're, you know, they think they have access to information because it's on the internet and they're not really working hand in hand with the customers. Or they're working with one or two customers and they have this overdeveloped, customized product that isn't good for the market. I read um, another interesting and depressing statistic last (laughs) year, uh, which is that over 40% of tickets raised at help desks are caused because engineers designed the product. Ah. Now, I mean, just think of what that means in terms of freeing up resource. The willingness to be vulnerable and invite the customer in and partner with them and make sure that you're getting the right customers in as well. Because I think one of the big problems is that they go, most organizations say, we help everybody. No, you don't. There are certain types of customer who do a really, really, really phenomenal job. Why not attract more of them? You know, you see this in digital marketing all of the time. People talk about your avatar and they tell, and I think avatar is probably overused and, and probably over narrow in their scope. But the saying is, if you say, if you claim to help everybody, you really help, help no one. You yeah. help no one. You're too generic. Well, th- this is where I think there's some really exciting developments in uh, some of the uh, technology that's out there that allows you to micro-segment Um, Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to do generic marketing campaigns, find the 127 people who fit this mold and then target them. I I think one of the biggest myths that's been peddled irresponsibly is this whole idea of personalization at scale. It just doesn't work. I mean, you only have to look at your inbox on LinkedIn to see how bad that automated pseudo-personalized stuff is you know, but loads of people this week alone, I must have had seven or eight attempted pitches where people are telling me that, that they work with companies like my podcast. Now, how, how do you work with a company that's like my podcast? It's a not-for-profit. Um, it's not a business. It's simply a, a really interesting vehicle for me to learn. Um, and they don't that, even know. That's something that they put in into their their blanket marketing. Yeah, exactly. But that, that, and that's the point. That kind of person, un, uh, unpersonalization at scale means that those are companies I will never do business with. Well, here's something else that's important too, though, is that when, when you have a, something that is customized, so say technology, for example, and you customize it for a particular customer, 
that's not necessarily the best practice for that customer. Right. It's really important also. So you take your information from the customer, but you also have to take your information from common sense and in, in advancing the mission of what you do. So, so that's how my company got its name is that I'd always done conceptual products and conceptual ideas and taken them forward. So my son came up with this little quick quip about it when he was a little guy. So I think that it's important to take your information from what the customer needs, as well as trending research that's showing where that particular segment is going with regulations and best practices. And then you come up with a a product that doesn't really meet them where they're at. It advances your customer's mission down the road, right? So there's a culmination of that. And you cannot customize something to one particular customer and keep them in their box. You're not doing them any favors. I was taught that the problem a prospect brings you is never the real problem. Um, oh, I yeah, believe agree. the solution that the customer says they want is never the right solution because they what they're typically doing is they're seeing their world through their own uh, silo or through their blinders, uh, their blinkers. And as a result, the solution that they say they want, especially when they're buying tactically, will have negative unintended consequences on the rest of the system. And you only have to look at, you know, the churn rate. That's another, you know, a really good indicator that you're not really paying attention to your customer and meeting them where they're going to be. Your customer's business has the same problem that all of these organizations' business that we have. So most salespeople need to be a business consultant. You need to think about how they're treating their clients, their patients, their customers, whomever that may be. So uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. Sorry to cut you off. I'm just so excited about that. That then brings me very neatly to your predictions in terms of the future of sales. Love to get your take on that. I think that it's interesting. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday about this. Is And the title of the conversation was, is sales dead? I think that the role of the classic sales rep is going away. I think that sales professionals and the way that I see what a true sales professional is, I think that that's going to be more needed than ever. And that person that's a sales professional needs to be a, they need to know the business and of their customers and the business of business, if you will, better than anybody else. Those are the people that are actually going to be needed and those are the going to be they're going to have those are the people that are capable of having those tough conversations with customers and being able to say what you want is not in your best interest you're addressing your symptom here's what you need and and then showing them how what they need is going to help them survive in the future and so that's where the customer the exposure to lots of customers will mm-hmm. position truly professional salespeople to be a someone who has the credibility and the breadth of exposure to be able to advise like that. But again, because- Somebody who hones their craft though, right? So you have to hone your craft and not just with your customers, but you have to understand business. You have to understand economics. You have to understand the field that you're operating in. And you also have to understand how to drive discretionary effort internally. And that's huge. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover it today, but I'd love to have you back. 
I would love to talk to you about that and hear what your thoughts are on that, because I think that that is, that could be an encyclopedic volume of its own. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, Crystal, tell me this, um, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Crystal age 23. What okay. are you whispering her ear that you know should have probably have ignored? Follow your gut. Follow what you know instead of what what other people have fed into you as far as their fears and put their fears on you. So be bold, go forward, and fulfill what you think it should have been that you should be doing. Okay. So I'm 25 years late, but I'm there. <laughs> well, tell me about it. I'm about 50 years late. Oh, okay. Maybe 20 years late. <laughs> so. Tell me this then, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, to give them a good dose of reality? Everything they can. I think that if you pay attention to a lot of different sources, so so it's interesting because I, I was talking to a good friend of mine, uh, his name is Scott Bell, and Scott Bell is much like you. He has an encyclopedic reference of material of something that he's read at any single point. And so I listen to Scott often because he has a variety of of information, but I also, Rich Sheffron, Strategic Profits. So he has a group, Strategic Profits, and you can get his quarterly newsletter. So if you're into the internet marketing space, that's really important. But but there's also a, a lot of relevant business information that he gives that is just spot on. And he's he's somebody who's so brilliant that you that he actually has the ability to take his brilliance and dumb it down for the rest of us, if you will. (laughs) So um, Jay Abraham, the other thing is politics. Pay attention to what's going on Um, in the U.S. Especially what we do is we look at, people look at one station or another station and you have to really look underneath what's going on because there's so much information. But if you watch what's going on in politics, you can see what the commercials are really these politicians are stating and therefore you can kind of if you pay attention to the economics and the macroeconomics and global economics you can see what kind of nonsense is probably coming down the pike because you can smell their bullshit a mile away so if, <laughs> you, if you know if you pay attention like politicians are much like diapers they need to be changed often for exactly the same reason but you can probably smell what's coming up based on what their new campaign is going to be. It's kind of disgusting, but it gives you a good hint of the nonsense that's going on. And then you can kind of figure out who's pulling the strings, you know, and then follow it back from there. I'm with you in terms of having an eclectic mix. Over the last seven, eight years, I must have read upwards of seven, eight hundred books. And having all of those different dots to join up, um, whether it's history, quantum physics, uh, sociology, psychology, sales, marketing, recruitment, whatever, I think it pays to have a diverse range of perspectives. And without that, you tend to uh, confirm what your biases already are. And I think one of the really interesting um, experiences I've had is by inviting people whose opinions differ to mine, synthesizing much stronger opinions that are better, because I know I'm never right. It it may be the case that I'm on the right path, but there's always a way to improve. I always assume that I have something to learn. 
And one of the things that I have always um, studied is military history. And I think it's because military history shapes the history of the world, really. Everything that comes out of that from socioeconomics to cultures to whatever may come. And so between military history and the history of, of nations and the way that things have evolved, you learn you really learn a lot about everything that you just said. Sociology, psychology, economics, you learn a lot from that. Absolutely. And you don't be constrained within right. your own discipline either. I think salespeople absolutely should have a library that's two-thirds marketing and customer success because so much emphasis is placed on technique as opposed to intent. It's focused on the tactics of manipulation as opposed to helping people solve their problems intelligently, collaboratively. Agreed. the, Agreed. the, The lack of business acumen because people don't have the, uh, the time and they're churning every 12 to 18 months from job to job. They never get that exposure. And that, again, I think is crucial to the long-term survival and health of the business. The other thing you have, and I agree with that 100%, I think that tactics are just that, they're tactics, right? So there's, there's not a lot of sophistication to that. They're, they're helpful, But I think that being able to have that business acumen and understand the psychology of marketing so that you understand what people need and and can lead them to what they actually need instead of what they perceive they need is important. But I also think that individuals that have grown up only grown up or matured within one particular organization are missing out a lot. So if you were to look at my resume, you would see that I've moved from a variety of companies, but I have a common theme and I take my strategies and my acumen to though, each of those and, and bring it into that field. And I think that that's one of the strengths that I have because I don't come from a tactical perspective. I can do the hard closes, but I don't think a hard close is, is the appropriate thing to do. Uh, I'm with you 100%. Okay. Yeah. Crystal, how can people get hold of you? Probably the best way to do that is email. So it's crystal, K-R-I-S-T-E-L at kbiconcepts.com. Excellent. Crystal Bilby, thank you. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus County signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, go over to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave an honest review. One, three, five stars, whichever. Just leave an honest review. If you hate it, tell me why so I can improve it. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.